This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF. He Shall Have Dominion, a post-millennial eschatology by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1992. Chapter 6. The Covenants of Redemption At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12 Structuring the relationship of God to man and exercising a great influence on the redemptive flow of history is the biblical idea of covenant. Biblical theologian Gerhardus Voss writes that redemption and eschatology are coeval throughout biblical history, meaning of equal duration. So the covenant concept has a tremendous bearing on eschatology. Covenantal scripture. Covenant defined. A covenant may be defined as a legal bond which establishes a favorable relation between parties based on certain specified terms and which promises blessings for faithful adherence to those terms while threatening curses for man's unfaithful departure from them. In a covenant, the parties are solemnly sworn to maintain the specified obligations. Scripture notes of God's covenant with Abraham. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Hebrews 6.13 As legal obligations... Favorable covenantal relations can be maintained only by the faithful keeping of the stipulated terms. Of the covenant set before Israel under Moses, we read, I have set before you today life, and prosperity, and death, and adversity. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Deuteronomy 34, 15, 19 Obedience to covenantal demands brings blessings. Disobedience brings cursings. Thus, a covenant establishes a legal bond that establishes and protects specified rights. Covenant and Scripture The Bible is very much a covenant document, as even a cursory reading of Scripture demonstrates. The biblical words for covenant appear often in Scripture. The Hebrew bereth occurs 285 times in the Old Testament, while the Greek word Diathek appears 30 times in the New Testament. Thus, it might well be said that the biblical category which does the greatest justice to the persistence of God's activity among his people is the covenant relation. That the covenant idea is a dominant biblical theme is held by a host of biblical scholars. Mutually established covenants were common both among the ancients and of which are, have many examples found in both scripture and in ancient non-biblical texts. By way of example, we might notice the covenants between Abraham and Abimelech, Genesis 21, verses 22 through 32. Isaac and Abimelech, Genesis 26, 26 through 31. Jacob and Laban, Genesis 31, 43 through 55. Joshua and the Gibeonites, Joshua 9, 3 through 15 and Solomon and Hiram, 1 Kings 5.12. Such mutually established covenants are similar to modern contracts and treaties, although with some important differences. V. 
these human covenants were between roughly equal parties, man to man. Also, revealed in scripture are the much more important, sovereignly established divine covenants. The parties in these are decidedly unequal, the infinite God and the finite man. The history structuring divine covenants of epochal significance in scripture are those established with Adam, Hosea 6-7, Noah, Genesis 6-18, Abraham, Genesis 15-18, Israel, Exodus 24-8, and David, Psalm 89-3. Off in the future from the Old Testament perspective lay the glorious, final, consummative new covenant, Jeremiah 31-31-34. These divine covenants are unique to the biblical record. For outside the Old Testament, we have no clear evidence of a treaty between a God and his people. The significance of these covenants for scripture will be dealt with below in the section demonstrating the relationship of covenant and redemption. Covenant and Creation Even the very creation of the world must be understood in terms of covenant. The creation account portrays a covenantal action. Even though it does not employ the word covenant, beareth, I argue this on three bases. First, the elements of a covenant are there, even though the word is lacking. When God created Adam, he entered into a blessed relationship, Genesis 1, 26-27, with him that established a legal bond on the basis of specified terms, Genesis 2, 50-17. In that bond, God promised life for obedience and death for disobedience, Genesis 2, 16-17, this forms the essence of a covenantal relation. Second, later references actually employ covenantal terminology speak of the creation as a covenantal action. In Jeremiah we read, Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should be not day and night in their season, Jeremiah 33.20, Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant be not with the day and the night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, Jeremiah 33.25. As Robertson has carefully pointed out, in Jeremiah 33.25, the Hebrew structure of the verse parallels ordinances, huquat, of heaven and earth, and the covenant, beareth, with day and night, pointing back to the orderly creation ordained of God. This seems clearly to harken back Genesis 1.14. And God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Some might rather see this as an indicator of the Noahic covenant mentioned in Genesis 8.22, While the earth remaineth, seedeth, and harvest, and cold, and heat, and summer, and winter, and day and night shall not cease. But in a passage pressing the same point elsewhere, Jeremiah employs the term ordinance, hukoth, to speak of the sun, moon, and stars as the bearers of light. Jeremiah 31, 35, as does Genesis 1, but not Genesis 8. Even the reference to stars is lacking in Genesis 8, though appearing in Jeremiah 31, 35. Third, Hosea 6, 7a is another passage employing covenant in reference to the creation. Speaking of Israel, God declares, They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Although the Hebrew term Adam may be translated either Adam in particular or man in general, either would point back to the original covenant with Adam and Eden. Yet the particular man 
Adam seems to be in view here for several, for, for several reasons. In the first place, the significance of Adam's sin would bring out the force of the comparison with Israel's rebellion more specifically. Adam's role as the greater sinner in, is familiar to the Jews, Genesis 3. And Job 31, 3, 33 serves as a parallel. If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, therefore if man were adopted in Hosea 6, 7, the verse would be altogether expressionless. How else could they have sinned then like men? In addition, the reference they have transgressed is to Ephraim and Judah, not to the priests, Thus, the contract is not between priests and ordinary men, but between Ephraim and Judah and the historical Adam. Certainly, the scriptures are preeminently a covenantal document. Even the pattern for creation is developed covenantally in the revelation of God. Covenant and Redemption The unity of scripture may be traced in the unity of the covenants, which set forth the overarching covenant of grace. The heart of God's covenant of the promise is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. This idea occurs a great number of times in Scripture. The redemptive covenants are established in order to secure a favorable relationship between God and his people. By means of the covenant, the covenant people become immediately related to the Lord of heaven and earth. Covenantal development is onion-like, layer upon layer. Each successive covenant supplements its predecessors. We may easily see this in comparing the structural and thematic con continuity between the covenants. For instance, in preparing for the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, we learn that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Exodus 2.24, under the Davidic Covenant. We find reference to and deliverance under the Mosaic Covenant frequently mentioned, as well as to the Abrahamic and of course, the relationship of the New Covenant with earlier covenants is contained in the very formula of the New Covenant. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Interestingly, Ezekiel combines the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants in the chapters in which he deals with the New Covenant. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, Davidic. And they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. Mosaic. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. Abrahamic. And they shall dwell, the, dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Davidic. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, new. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 26. In the New Covenant era itself, we discover continuity with the preceding covenants. Romans 16:20 harkens back to the Adamic covenant. 2 Peter 3 5 through 7 draws a parallel with the Noahic covenant. Romans 4:16 founds the new covenant on the Abrahamic. Romans 3:31 demonstrates the validity of the Mosaic. Romans 15:22 harkens back to the Davidic covenant. As mentioned above, 
Paul summed up the various Old Testament covenants as being the, the covenants plural of the promise, singular. There is both a basic unity undergirding the divine covenants as well as a progressive development in them. Thus, with the coming of the new covenant in the ministry of Christ, the fullness of time has been reached, Galatians 4.4. 4. And these concern redemption, a redemption as we shall see, that shall overwhelm the world. The major competitor to covenantal theology, even among evangelicals today, is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism allows the historic, biblical covenants to play a large role in its theology. Yet, dispensational theology and covenantal theology are in the final analysis irreconcilable. Indeed, reformed covenant doctrine cannot be harmonized with premillennialism. Because dispensations are not stages in the revelation of the covenant of grace, but are distinguishedly different administrations of God in directing the affairs of the world. Thus, the major difference between covenantal theology and dispensational theology is that covenantal theology traces a relentless, forward-moving, unified, and developmental progress of redemption generally understood in Reformed theology as the covenant of grace. Dispensational theology, however, moves forward farther fitfully, backing up the final dispensation into a Jewish era involving a temple and a memorial sacrificial cultus, the millennium. For better or for worse, the very system name dispensationalism tends to throw the focus on the system's discontinuous, compartmental view of history, despite the protests of dispensationalists. This is because a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. If one were describing a dispensation, he would include other things such as the ideas of distinctive revelation, testing, failure, and judgment. Dispensations, then, are not stages in the revelation of the covenant of grace, but are distinguishedly different administrations of God directing the affairs of the world. It necessarily has a fragmenting effect on biblical history. In fact, as one dispensationalist notes, the more one moves in the continuity direction, the more covenantal he becomes, and the more he moves in the discontinuity direction, the more dispensational he becomes. Certainly, then, discontinuity in the redemptive history is a major effect of dispensationalism. I will show later that this has a major bearing on the development of, redemp of the redemptive purpose of God in history, and thus on the eschatology of Scripture. When I compare the catastrophically introduced millennial kingdom of dispensationalism and the gradually developed kingdom of postmillennialism, although there are many covenants specified and implied in Scripture, the overarching redemptive purpose of God throws a special emphasis on a select few of these. These covenants include the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and Christ's new covenant. It is unfortunate that dispensationalism suggests a secular understanding of some of these covenants rather than a redemptive one. I will pr prove this in a later chapter when I focus on the postmillennial outworking of redemption. Covenantal Obligation Due to the covenantal influence in Scripture, we learn that man's obligations are not fundamentally individualistic, but rather corporate. As we shall see in later chapters, this fits well with a postmillennial eschatology and its strong view of social responsibility. Here is outlined the case for the societal obligations of covenantalism. Man was purposefully created as an organic, unified race, whereas all mankind traces its origin back to Adam, including Eve herself. Animals were created en masse. Even angels were created en masse as non-procreative individuals, 
a host. The organic unity of the human race is vitally important to the redemptive plan of God, as seen in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Adam was the federal head of all mankind, a legal representative. In him we are legally and judicially dead. Romans 5, 12-19, 1 Corinthians 5, 22. Christ is the federal head of all those chosen out of eclectos, mankind. In him we are legally and judicially declared alive. Christ became flesh in order that he might attach himself to the unified race and become its redeemer. That God's covenant has societal implications may be seen in its being established with Abraham and his seed. Genesis 12, 1-4 The significance of Israel's organic connection is illustrated in her portrayal as a vine. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, 1-7 In addition, when God made covenant with Israel in the wilderness, it includes future generations. Deuteronomy 5, 3 Because of this, God specifically promises covenant blessings and warns of covenant curses running in communities of people. Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 detail specifics of community in curses and blessings, transported from generation to generation and expansively covering the broad community. This covenantal factor is also demonstrated in Israel's history. For example, the whole nation of Israel suffered defeat in war due to the grievous sins of Achan. Joshua 7.1 They were learning corporate responsibility through this lesson from God. Outside of Israel, Pagan communities were destroyed for their corporate evil. Neither may Christianity be properly understood in terms of radical individualism. By God's grace, we are in covenant with him as a community. This may be seen from a number of angles. 1. We are grafted into the community of God's people as a branch into a tree. Romans 11, 17, 18. We are adopted into the commonwealth of Israel and partake of the covenants of the promise. Ephesians 2, 12-16 Thus we are included in the household of God. Ephesians 2, 19-22 As stones in the building. 1 Peter 2, 5 We are constituted one interrelated body. 1 Corinthians 2, 24-27 We are part of one connected vine. John 15, 1-8 Our blessings as members of the Christian community flow from our head. Jesus Christ, the body, to us. Ephesians 1, 20. The common societal unit among men is the family. Family solidarity involves covenant succession, as it is evident from the following. Marriage, the world's first institution, Genesis 1, 26-28, 2, 18-24, and Matthew 19, 4, was established as a permanent obligation among men. At 2. Adam's fulfillment of his mandate to subdue the earth required family procreation and solidarity. 3. The principle of a family solidarity is clearly illustrated in God's sparing of the families of righteous men during judgments. See the cases of Noah, Abraham, and Lot. 4. Due to this covenant, responsibilities centered around the family. Diligent child training was commanded in multiple places in scripture. Family protection was mandated. Three of the Ten Commandments specifically guard the family while others relate to the family. Families are declared to be a heritage from the Lord. Fruitfulness is a blessing while barrenness is lamented. 
6. God's blessings run in family generations, as may be seen in the cases of Noah, Japheth, Abraham, Rahab, and covenant people in general. By the same token, God's curses also run in family generations. Because of God's covenantal love, he graciously sanctifies the offspring of the covenant faithful. 1 Corinthians 7, 14, Romans 14, 17. In the New Testament even, his blessings are framed in terms inclusive of family generations, rather than terms excluding family generations. Because of God's covenantal love, he graciously sanctifies the offspring of the covenant faithful. 1 Corinthians 7.14, Romans 14.17 In the New Testament, even, his blessings are framed in terms inclusive of family generations, rather than in terms excluding family generations. Inheritance In all of this, we learn something of the wider obligations of the Christian faith. We should always bear in mind that there are, is a collective responsibility and that there are always sufficient reasons why God should visit cities, districts, or nations with dire calamities. In the soil of covenantal corporate responsibility, post-millennial eschatology takes root and grows in the light of God's word. Objective Blessedness The covenantal foundation of the eschatological hope encourages the anticipation of God's historical blessings in history. The biblical worldview is concerned with the material world, the here and now. Christianity's interest in the material here and now is evident in that God created the earth and man's body as material entities and all very good. Christ came in the flesh to redeem man. His word directs us in how to live in this present material world and God intends for us to remain on the earth for our fleshly sojourn, and does not remove us upon being saved by his grace. As is obvious from these four observations, Christians have a genuine concern for their objective environment. At death, all men enter the spiritual world, the eternal realm, either heaven or hell. But prior to the, our arrival in the eternal state, all men live before God in the material world which he has created for his own glory as the place of man's habitation. His covenant sanctions, blessings for the righteousness and curses for the unrighteous, may therefore be expected in history. That is to say, these sanctions are predictable. The objectivity of covenantal blessing which undergirds the post-millennial eschatology is clearly set forth in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. When God's covenantal people are faithful to his law word, he will bless them in all areas of life. When they fail him, his curses will, will pursue them to overtake them. Deuteronomy 28, 15-68, Leviticus 26, 21-39. Such blessings are alluded to in a number of places and under a variety of images. Among these blessings are reduction of disease, abundant food production, temporal longevity, blessings upon offspring, economic prosperity, national stability, and peace. In fact, such passages provide the biblical basis of progress in history, not just linear movement, but upward, linear progression. The material things of life must be kept in perspective, but Christ promises they will be given to his people. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He even promises his people that if they leave all for him, they will receive many times more in this life. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. Luke eighteen twenty eight through 30 Conclusion All of the various covenants in Scripture are equally the covenants of the promise. Ephesians two twelve. The covenant concept runs throughout Scripture. It frames God's creational process, structures his dealings with man, and most importantly, for this book's thesis, ensures the success of his divine program in history. This program is not the defeat of Christ's redemptive work in history, the gospel salvation, the building of his church, and the establishment of his comprehensive worldwide kingdom, Christendom. The decline of covenant theology since the late 19th century has led to the decline of Christian influence in society. Postmillennialism is fundamentally covenantal, presenting a full orb of Christianity in its pristine authority and power. The specific covenants of the Old and New Testament support the postmillennial position, as I will show in greater detail in chapter 10.